0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, I'm Jamila Jamil, and welcome to Earwolf Presents, featuring an episode of my show, I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. Each week, Earwolf Presents brings you a new episode from the Earwolf universe of podcasts. And today, in honor of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, you'll hear an episode of I Way featuring the great Margaret Cho. Margaret Cho is an absolute legend, and this episode is a delight. We get into her experience as an Asian American woman in this industry, her journey unpacking the aspirational whiteness she grew up with, her adventures as a dominatrix, and loving living alone. It is Wonderful. If you enjoy this episode, check out the rest of the podcast, I Way with Jamila Jamil. We have new episodes every Friday wherever you listen. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Way with Jamila Jamil. Merry fucking Christmas, if you care at all. I'm maintaining I still do not. But um, I wanted to bring you this episode today with Margaret Cho, who I think is so funny and so smart. And she's such an icon within the comedy world and also just such a role model for Asian-Americans, you know, who was so, was still underrepresented in media, but she was really like one of the first staple talents on television and has continued to be for decades now. In this episode, we go, we really go there. I mean there's nowhere that this woman was not willing to go with me it was the shortest pre-interview I've ever had because she was just like fuck it I'm an open book um, and I want to give you a trigger warning here because we do talk about sexual abuse um especially in children and the sexualization of young girls so if that's something that you are not ready to hear on Christmas day this up you know supposedly <laughs> upbeat warm family day then that's okay maybe just save this for day after tomorrow or to never listen to ever um She's just gone on to have one of these really unpredictable and just fascinating trajectories in such an odd industry. And, and she talks to me about trying to navigate that as, a, as an Asian woman who is like both discriminated against and yet fetishized all at the same time. She talks a lot about struggling with eating disorders. Again, something that we predominantly associate with normally white women but it was really interesting to hear the impact. It's always interesting for me to hear the impact of body image on people who who are from different backgrounds and different minorities and ethnicities. And she really talks about that and how she's kind of overcome decades and decades of that self-hatred and that kind of struggle. And I think given Christmas being a time where a lot of people are, you know, they're anxious about food or they're being body shamed by family or they're being... Doubled down on right now by all the fasting and dieting apps. Are you noticing that? Are you noticing that this week you're getting more adverts than ever before? It's because they're gearing up to start shaming you the day before January first about how the diet starts tomorrow. You're going to lose that weight. 2021 is going to be the year that you look like a victorious Secret model. Uh, they're determined for you to be as thin as possible next year. So the body shaming is starting now, so you can get your New Year's body. And, and fuck them all. Fuck them all. Fuck them all to death. I hate them. I hate them so much. I hate diet companies so much. May 2021 be the year that we just lose the diet companies. That's all I want to lose next year. Just lose them all. They can all fuck off. I'd rather just shit them all out. Anyway, Margaret Cho is very smart. She's very funny. She's very independent. We go on and on about how much she loves living alone, which again, I think in lockdown is really important because some of us have quite liked the solitude and, and some of us have wished even for more solitude than we already have if we live with anyone. And I think that's really important. We never get to hear women, in particular women in their 40s or 50s, talking about the fact that maybe they just don't want to be with anyone. Maybe it's okay to just want to have lovers. And want to live alone and have complete autonomy over your own existence. We need more stories like that. I'm so sick of being in my 30s and hearing nothing but pressure and panic from women my age about the fact that they need to find someone and settle down with them, even if they're not the right person for them, just because they don't want to end up alone. Sometimes it's amazing to be alone, especially when it's out of choice. And I think it was so fabulous and liberating to hear a woman talk about that with so much love and joy and candor in such a funny way. So please enjoy the excellent and utterly liberated Margaret Cho. I am joined by the self-proclaimed patron saint of outsiders, it's only bloody Margaret Cho. Hello! Hi. Hi, hi, hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you. Welcome. I mean, we are your guys. This is uh this yes. is the Outsiders podcast and it yes. is so so good to have you here. I mean, just I've been a fan of yours for such a long time, but I I was always more aware of just the funny side rather than also all of the things that you went through to become the woman that you are. And in really doing a deep dive into your life, I realised that so many of the things that we talk about and we dive into on this podcast are things that you have personally experienced. I can't believe how fucking intersectional your trauma is. Um, Mm -hmm. But I feel Mm -hmm. as though you have such a unique perspective and such a hope you're such a hopeful example of survival and so it's a great honor to get to chat to someone a warrior like yourself
1: oh. oh thank you that's so wonderful i'm so excited to talk to you this is really cool um i'm such a fan too so this is awesome i mean i think it's it's something that it's like it's important to talk about because it's like we have such a gloss or this vene- veneer around um show business. And it's, it's a lot. It's a lot for women, especially for women of color, especially mm-hmm. for um, anybody who's even a little bit different. It's, it's a lot to take in and a lot to kind of deal with. And so um, kind of like being honest about it, being um, upfront about it, I think is really important.
0: I agree. I really do. And, and the whole point of this podcast is to demystify and destigmatize things that for some reason we have been shamed out of discussing, which, you know, I always think is a bigger agenda of the patriarchy to make sure that if we don't discuss it, then we don't compare notes. So we don't then realize how common all of these things are amongst mm-hmm. us. And then we don't come together and get pissed off and fight back as one.
1: Yeah. And so much of like the the way it is was like, kind of the my family's um problem with aspirational whiteness like the way that um my family you know came to this country and kind of ingested ingested this dream of wanting to be white with ev- without ever actually saying we want to be white you know this like they yeah. like they wanted us to go to like an ivy league school it had to be harvard or else You know, it had to be Harvard or else like Stanford. It had to be these schools. And it was never like stated, we want you to go there because you can't be white. But that's almost as good as being white. Like Mm -hmm. grades were kind of like a substitute for whiteness. Mm -hmm. And um, so thinness was another part of buying into that kind of dream of athleticism equals health equals we have money so we can um afford to look this way mm. and it's a kind of thing of like it all kind of like it's all this aspirational um dream of immigrants to want to look like white people it's and it's really weird it's really fucked up but i realize it's all tied into this thing of like when you um are different you try to assimilate and that assimilation can take the form of um self-hatred, eating disorders, all sorts of um anxiety that you don't even connect back to the immigrant experience.
0: A hundred percent. And I god I mean, god do I relate to that my parents and their different like phone voices that they had when they would be speaking to white people. I mean, the level of Mm -hmm. just like, Oh, hello. You know, that sort of just highly like RP English accent. And, and again, the aspiration towards the thinness, the deterrent from us going in the sun so that we didn't get too dark and, and wanting us to go to the best schools and be, you know, the kind of doctors, the lawyers, the, the white adjacent. It, it, It speaks to me so loud and so clear as to my experience. And, you know, I've spoken about it a couple of times in this podcast, the fact that it made me like really distance and indulge in only really connecting or discussing where I come from when it's in jest and when it's in ridicule. And I know that you've spoken about that in the past. The fact that one of the ways to make sure that you align yourself with Americanness, with whiteness is to poke fun at your ethnic past or your ethnic family. Um, But I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, Margaret is obviously one of the greatest comedians of all time. I'm saying it. I'm putting it out there. Uh, mentored by the great Joan Rivers, which I think is such an interesting story and and something that I can't wait to hear more about. Um, but also someone who has survived so many things, so many things to do with body image and eating disorders specifically, addiction and uh, abuse, even within your childhood. There are so and and also just surviving this industry as a woman and as a woman of color and and in such. An interesting moment in comedy, specifically, where only now are people finding out what this kind of like funny little cesspit has been like for women mm-hmm. all along. So there's a million things to dive into. Let's just start with your childhood and how it shaped your kind of journey with mental health.
1: Well, I um, always wanted to be a comedian, even though, like, I I think um, I just uh, really didn't see. Asian people on TV. I just knew that stand-up comedy was the art form that I wanted to be involved in, and I just loved it. And I saw Joan Rivers on television when I was really young, and it was probably inappropriate for me to be watching her, and probably not the right thing. But I loved her. I think because it seemed like she had friends, and I didn't really have friends like that knew me like her. Audience seemed to know her. You know, How come? They, Why? They, I think that they. I just didn't connect with um, the other Korean kids that my family, like my family, had all come over with the same class. Like when you're in in Korea, you you like hang out with the same um, like age group, and so they all came over to America. That that the class of sixty four all came to America at the same time. And then they came to America and they realized they didn't have to behave anymore. And so they, they all smoked pot. They all got with each other's spouses and they all just fucked off, like completely uh, just Mm -hmm. destroyed all their marriages and made like crazy decisions with their relationships. So they're all of their, like their spouses were having fights and setting their kids, um, in fights with each other. So it was this crazy thing where all the kids were bullying each other in proxy of the parents. So, and then my dad was like completely in this like mad love triangle with all of these like families. So I got the brunt of the bullying because he was embroiled in all these relationships with all these w- women in all these different families. So that's like <laughs> the big drama of the family. But because of that, one, that's one of the reasons. But because of that, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up that were Korean kids. Right. So I was like took my solace in like watching comedy on television. Yeah. And watching TV, like comedy in general. And I, I really fell in love with stand-up comedy. I fell in love with the comedians like Flip Wilson was a big comedian. I loved um everything, everything that I saw, I was just so into. I loved Saturday Night Live, the early, early, like the first cast. Um SCTV, I was so in love with. So any of that was like such a influential thing for me. And San Francisco was a big comedy town. And when I was a teenager, I would call the radio station and I would win tickets to go see comedians. And I would see Ellen all the time and Paula Poundstone all the time. And so I was so like a big fan and and going to these comedy shows. I realized, oh, I could actually do this. I could actually like go and I was doing comedy shows really early on and I fell in love with the art form like it was just a natural thing to do and it was easier than connecting with people socially I found a way to connect with people as um a comedian much more gracefully than as a person
0: and your family who were wanting you to go to all these ivy league schools and and you know embrace all of these kind of white cultural things they were comfortable with you doing stand-up no, but they—they they didn't know how
1: to—they um, didn't know how to stop me because I was so. Um,
0: and they were busy I, all I fucking think, everyone else.
1: <laughs> I know they were kind of like not really in control of it. Also, I was a girl, and that therefore not really the important part of the family because they had a they had a son, I had wow. a brother who um, you know was really um, the important part of the family because you know the sons are the treasured sons they're they're, they're the ones that are meant to be the important members of the family not that they don't care about the girls but
0: the son is the legacy it's like
1: the son is the legacy the son holds the keys to the future or whatever it didn't really matter because I was like really kind of I was also very independent and not willing to. Bend to any sort of tradition or um, there's this thing that you're supposed to do on New Year's where you bow to your parents and um, then they can begin the year and they give you money and um, they can't begin the year until you do it. And uh, so I haven't bowed to my parents since like 1986. In their mind, it's still 1986. (laughs) So they're they're stuck in time. Uh. Um, But it keeps us all young. I think that's good. Um, but it's a funny, it's a funny thing because it's like they just—it's not that they didn't care, but they just didn't know how to deal with a girl who's rebellion, rebellious. So they don't know what to do with a a girl's rebellion because that's just like this has never happened. Like, how do we
0: even cope with it? They're also kind of having their own rebellions, you know. It sounds yeah. like you know moving there and kind of entering all these chaotic triangles. It sounds as though they kind of were also potentially a little bit distracted with alternative drama i suppose yeah.
1: so they were doing their own sort of dramatic thing and um what was good was i became pretty successful fairly early on like i was able to make a living at comedy um as um like 19 20 year old so that was like kind of good so yeah. they didn't have to worry too much about me or what i was doing and um, then i was doing television by the time i was 21 22 and so there there was a kind of um usually like all korean parents want to do is brag about their children i think any any parents want to they just want to brag about their kids mm. so with me it was uh it was easy for them to say well my child is doing this and they could turn on star search <laughs> <laughs>
0: See me on Starfish. I wonder where that rebellion came from in you. Was it from watching your parents rebel or was it also from your own tricky childhood that you were kind of having to navigate a little bit by yourself at times?
1: I think both. I think it was also that I um I guess I just really didn't think that I had um anything to lose also because I mean it was like, well, what am I what is the gamble really? There's nothing to, there's nothing really at stake because it doesn't really matter, you know. Like it doesn't, nothing, nothing really. I, I, I can do whatever.
0: What? Did, where did that feeling of nothing really matters come from? Because sometimes, as kids, they feel. I, I was, I felt very similarly, but then again, you and I had like terrifyingly similar childhoods, uh, and so with a lot of kids my age I felt like they were very much so really worried about everything and they felt like they had everything to lose and they felt like even you know that friday that friday exam my future depends on my friday spelling bee you know like the importance uh-huh. that so many kids put on everything because they they don't have that sense of kind of the the fuck it bucket and and for me personally mm-hmm. my fuck it bucket came from just extreme trauma from the age of about you know 4 or 5 onwards and so yeah. I won I wonder and again like this might be too personal to talk about with you but I just I was you know 5 years old when I first encountered like my first abusive relative and um and the way in which that that went on to kind of like mark the rest of my childhood I became like an adult by the time I was 6 years old and so I walked mm-hmm. through my childhood as a grown up making very grown up decisions with this kind of very uh, not to say that recklessness is grown up, but I kind of just felt like anything was possible from such right. a young age because so much had already happened, I'd already come through so much, survived so much that I was like, this just doesn't seem like that big a deal. I can enter into show business at twenty one with no experience and just take it on the chin.
1: yeah, well, it's true. I think that when also like because i I encountered sexual abuse so young, like around five, mm. but then I think like I I think also when you're growing up in the 80s, sexualizing young girls in the 80s was such a normalized thing that it was in like movies, like you would see it all the time. And it was in um, like all sorts of magazines and advertisements. You would see it constantly everywhere. And there was a normalization of it that it wasn't. it wasn't considered uh, pedophilia. It wasn't considered um, like this awful thing. It was just a. It was just another part of sexuality, and so there was something about it. Even though it felt wrong, it was totally normalized, which was a really awful part of growing mm. up then. But also, um, you constantly push those feelings down. Mm. And denied it to yourself, too. So there's a part of me that often forgets that it was abuse.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. I didn't even know it was abuse until I was 15. I looked back on yeah. it. I was like, I was, you know, and I also, by the way, don't think this is just an 80s thing. You know, what happened mm-hmm. to me was, I guess, in the 90s. But even now, because we don't tell children anything. And we don't tell Mm -hmm. them what they're supposed to be looking out for. This can happen to anyone at any time in any era. The fact that you don't understand that someone's pushing boundaries because you're learning all your boundaries from adults and other adults haven't told you what those boundaries should be yet. What I think is so yeah. interesting is in the United Kingdom at the moment, they're introducing sex education for five-year-olds, which is just, it's not like, you know, they're not talking about the clitoris, but they're just saying, you can't touch me here, and they point to the mouth or here on the chest or here on the private parts. part. Like they, they're giving them the language to make sure that they can tell another adult, like, hey, I know what the fuck is up, because what they rely upon is the fact that people like you and me didn't know it was wrong we thought maybe this is a game maybe i've yeah. done something to incite this am i supposed to be flattered is this yeah. I, is this like prince and princess like you know there's there's so much that we don't understand because we just aren't told otherwise and i yeah. um and i find it so interesting how fast it can make one precocious i mean i was i was reading about the fact that and tell me oh <laughs>
1: She doesn't You're, like it when
0: people run in the hallway. Oh, don't. fair enough. I thought
1: she was just very don't. rightfully
0: upset about paedophilia, um, no, which she, is fair. That too. Yeah, that too. She says she's child really rights. against it. Exactly. She's right. She says she agrees with you. She really yeah. agrees with you. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry to hear um, that. That was also something in your childhood, and and one of the things that I feel like so many people listening in don't know about, and I know this because of my DMs as to how personal people are with me, but. Everyone Mm -hmm. thinks Mm -hmm. that they're the only one and no one has any idea how common this story is. And I feel like it's extra common in backgrounds from ethnic minorities. Yeah. Where there's like an extra kind of shame on sex. There's like an extra taboo on sex. Like they've made it this thing that the people can't be open about. And so therefore people are maybe even more likely to turn to perversions. Mm hmm. Do you feel the, the
1: same silence. way? Yeah. And then keep the tradition is to keep the silence around it so that you don't share. I mean, yeah. it's like, it's a very, it's a vicious cycle because you're keeping those secrets and it, it stays in that community and it just, it's, it's really destructive. You know, it's, it's really, it's really awful. And, um, but it is so common. I think what's rarer is For people to not have had it, Mm, you know, it's much rarer to encounter people who have had no experience with it, because um, I think the majority of people I know have endured some level of it, you know, Mm. um, or they don't remember, you know, that that's that's a lot of it, too. they're in denial about it but it's really common especially people you know in my age group you know because like usually like when you're talking about like something that happened in like 60s 70s 80s at that in that era it was so like you know like filmmakers like roman Polanski, like that that era they really they really delve into those kinds of subjects like with They're winning Oscars with those kind of movies. It's like crazy. I know. I mean,
0: I remember even watching Gigi, which was made in like the 70s, where you have like an eight or nine year old girl and this guy like Gaston or whatever the fuck his name was, he's like waiting (laughs) for her to turn like 15. So she'll be a woman. And what's that song? It's like, thank heavens for little girls. (laughs) And and it's this song about like those helpless eyes. That's what the songs are. Those helpless eyes Uh so desperate and appealing. One day they're going it's, to send you crashing through the. So helpless and appealing. Sorry, that's the line. So helpless and appealing. One day will send you crashing through the ceiling. It's such a terrifying way to talk about little girls.
1: It's horrible, and it's like it's it's so um, it's so rapey and gross, and it's like why? I know. Why you know? It's so weird. But it's, it's about like,
0: control, though. It's about it's control. control.
1: And fear—it's—it's fear—it's about men's innate fear of female power, and that's why they want to sexualize young girls because they think that somehow they can circumvent female power by going in and going in for somebody that's like impressionable, like young. Mm. But that you—that's not—that's not the way to circumvent power. That that you know, because young girls can fuck you up too, just like. Baby rattlesnakes are the most
0: poisonous. (laughs) (laughs) I was so fascinated to read that at 15 years old, you were working as a kind of, as a sex line operator. Yeah.
1: Um, it was actually for, um, So this was for this is my crazy friend who uh, unfortunately passed away a year and a half ago, who this dog is named after. She was like the crazy friend that gets you into all the trouble. But so she was she and I were 15 and she got me this job. And so we uh, it wasn't live phone sex. It was recorded phone sex. So we were in a booth. And so we was like doing like um, recorded phone sex monologues.
0: What do you, what do you mean? Is it, so are we talking like pre-recorded? Oh yes, you're so hard. What a big boy. Really?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was very simple English for people learning English. So it was like English as a second language. What? But Hot Girls USA. So it was for like people who were not good at speaking English. Okay. But wanted to learn, but also wanted to nut. (laughs) And... (laughs) So it was a great way to like make some money and also help people learn. To I don't English. understand.
0: I don't understand. So it's the only English that they are now walking around saying, it's like, I am throbbing, you know, it's like, yeah. are those the words that they're, le- are they the only words that they're learning? Basically like, Oh, she's so wet. Like what's. Yeah. <laughs> so they would learn the basic
1: sentence structure and they would learn like verb, noun, con. You
0: know, so just a bunch of like visit. foreign perverts that like, you're just sort of like yeah. raising and like they're going out yeah. to a store and just having incredibly sexually explicit conversations. That's so But amazing. At least they could
1: learn how to talk dirty, hey, but they it, can talk. At least they can communicate.
0: The spoonful of sex helps the medicine go down. I'm not mad at it. It That's was so funny. It
1: was really funny. A funny thing. Like it was like, it was like kind of, I don't know, Rosetta
0: Stone after dark. Oh, I love that. <laughs>
1: And then so you became a,
0: and then you became a dominatrix was that soon after um that was
1: at the same time, but I was really bad at that. I only did that a couple <laughs> of times, and i was really i i was really not good i don't have a lot of arm strength, and it takes a lot more <gasps> concentration i'm really not i don't I just don't give enough you know like I think a dominatrix requires a lot of um so you are paddling, like you're whipping, attention.
0: are you wh- whipping and paddling? Is this what whipping you're
1: whipping and paddling, but also like you have to really focus in on what a person really wants and what they don't want. And then you got to give them a little bit of both. And it's just, it's a lot of work. I don't, I don't have the energy.
0: Cause I'm like a really, therapist.
1: Yeah. It's a therapist, but it's also like maternal, but it's also um, like a trainer too. Mm-hmm. Kind of. There's so many things that are going on and I don't have that kind of dy- dynamism in my sexuality. It, it's somebody who's a dominator. It's a good one. They also am ex- are, I think, are excited by it. And I'm not excited by control. Yeah. It's not exciting to me.
0: No, same. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fun. I hate responsibility and also like mess I, I hate it. hate mess. I've, I've I can't have I threesome. I've never had a threesome because I don't like queuing. Like I don't like you know standing in line <laughs> like I just don't I, I I've got so many rules of laziness around sex. And also just the know, idea I'm of having to lazy. put down like linoleum before you'd like you know get your fucking sex swing with the f- lube fountain out. And like, it's, again no no shame. No. I I admire anyone who can make the effort and go the whole mile, but I'm really just yeah. such a lazy it's too fuck. much. <laughs> yeah, I'm too lazy. Um, it's too much. That's super young, super young to engage in. Even if yeah. it is like quite like distanced uh, phone sex and dominatrix, but I guess at that point you're just kind of were you quite detached?
1: I think I was detached. the The, the phone sex thing was really funny. Yeah, I, mean, it I think it's ridiculous. Hysterical. Yeah. It was, It was really funny and it was just dumb and it was just a one of a series of jobs that we got because at the same time, we also were um, at working at a toy store that was in business at the time called F.A.O. Schwartz. And I was the Raggedy Ann doll and she was the ballerina. (laughs) So we were working there and then we were working at the phone sex place. And then um, so it was like a series of like crazy jobs that we had.
0: What's interesting in particular about a young Korean girl participating in these things is the fact that you kind of exist on both sides of this odd spectrum of presumption of Asians that we see over in the West, okay. right? So there's like 50%, not even 50%, but there's a, a large portion of people who would look as look at an Asian as highly unsexual, right? Because that's yeah. the ways in which you have been portrayed uh, in media or just not portrayed, in media, in mm-hmm. those kind of like yeah. vital roles of just like a regular American, a, a person. Yeah. Um. And so there are so many people who desexualize Asians, especially right. Asian men, it feels like. Yeah. And then also there's this other massive sect of people who very much so fetishize Asian women, who then mm-hmm. only look at them as objects of sex and objects right. to, to have these kind of uh, romantic sexual engagements with.
1: Yes. Yes. So it's like such extremes on both sides that you can't even be a real person that it's like they don't even allow you to uh, sort of any kind of humanity in between that you're just kind of there as a function of um, kind of an archetype as opposed to being a person. It's very, it's really strange.
0: How have you navigated that throughout your life growing up in America? This kind of fetishize versus desexualize?
1: It's almost like you almost want to either like you feel like comfortable falling into either one. It's like you almost like, should I play this role? Like you almost think, should I either be this? Like maybe it's better to fall into these societal positions of because those those roles seem empowering too. like what if I was completely um, asexual and did that kind of thing and like maybe got a job at the symphony. (laughs) or maybe like I don't know started working for the center for disease control or (laughs) then like got on the other side of it and um did 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 sort of the um whatever uh the Asian sex goddess that would be kind of hot too I don't know maybe it's that's the right thing to do who knows I think you want to like you want to sort of be something in society that society recognizes too there's like there's a desire there to want to fit in mm. and that's that's a that's an a problem unto itself because it's like we're constantly sort of fed these messages subliminally of like you got to fit in you got to fit in you got to fit in and we try to find those places where we do and that's i think a, another way of self harm
0: 100% although also you chose one of the paths least taken by Asian women, either because they haven't put themselves up for it or because they've just been utterly shunned from this industry. But you became a very, like, instantly vocal and racy stand-up comedian in a time where you were the only prominent Asian woman in stand-up. And so the one thing, regardless of how, however we would look at Asian women, I say we, I mean, I wasn't here, I wasn't born, but but, like, However society, the West looks at Asian women, they might look at them as to be had sex with, or they won't want sex, but we never think of them as loud and opinionated Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and, and very, very truthful and funny and sometimes vulgar or whatever vulgar is, you know, whatever they deem to be vulgar. And so Uh you coming out kind of swinging as much as you wanted to fit in, like that was a bold move to separate yourself and, and break the stereotype
1: Yeah. And it felt good, too. I mean, I think that was a really um, I mean, I'm glad to the younger person that I was that um, wanted to do that. You know, I'm 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 like, I'm kind of amazed that um, that the younger me was like, oh, I'm going to do this. Like, I I look back and I'm like, wow, that's so that's so crazy. Like, but, you know, that it it just kind of happened. And. If anything, what's great is that I got to inspire a lot of other comedians, um, Asian comedians, to go forth and do comedy because they saw that I could do it, which is really cool.
0: A hundred percent. When you were cast to play yourself in a TV show in 1994 on television, because as you were saying, like you made it very, very quickly um, within entering this industry, you started dieting to the point where your kidneys failed. Is that right? Yeah,
1: and it was so awful. Like I started to um, urinate blood, and it was Oof. so terrifying. Like it, and it, it was a, it was kind of like this thing of, um, you know, uh, I was so insecure about not being white and not being like anybody else on television, and I thought if I can just be thinner then maybe I could fit in that way. And, and I didn't realize till much later, that's what I was trying to do, that my crazy aspirational whiteness had got me to this point of like, at least I can be thinner, maybe that'll make me white. That's, that's, that's where it got me. Like, you know, so it it takes you to all these places, like the internalized racism will take you to these places of like wanting to just destroy your body in order to get there. And it's just like,
0: That's all it is. It's internalized racism. Oof. It's so interesting and it's so illuminating. And it's again, like, you know, it's only really in the last couple of years that we're learning the kind of the racist links to BMI, the racist links to the body shapes that we admire and the things that up until very recently we were saying were bad, like thighs and hips Mm -hmm. and bottoms and even big breasts. Like there was a time where I remember in the 90s, I didn't want to have breasts and it's so funny mm. because like now people pay very good money for big breasts. Right. And I would try everything. I had to write an apology to my breasts once that I put on the internet uh, many, many years ago. I'll see if I can mm. dig that out. Um, but I, <laughs> I used to wear like three sports bras at a time in order mm-hmm. to try and like shrink them down. Because I was so, I thought they were so unchic, and I thought they were so unwhite, and I wanted the kind of Kate Hudson ability to wear the kind of um, top that's that is kind of open all the way down to the waist. You know, the one that you can't wear a bra with. Dying to wear something like that. I really just want tape. Tape. (laughs) I was. I, I thought. Backless was just like the epitome yeah, of my end goal. I'm not I, I just it was all I thought I needed to finally be acceptable. Yes. I had this scholarship, I was this like impressive young kid, and I was like, but I can't wear backless, so I'm worth <laughs> nothing. No one should love me. Um, I really oh, like the I importance know. I put upon backlessness and wearing yellow silk yes. stripped to the waist <laughs> it was yes, unfucking I know, believable. I know. Oh. Um it's it's so it's so I feel you.
1: I'm right there. It's I'm so right frustrating. There, yeah,
0: and it was just such <laughs> a it's and it's it's also just so funny having these conversations about how rooted in, you know, whiteness these ideals were and yet mm-hmm. now in the last 2 years you have girls threading. So threading is when you put either a wire or a very strong string in the top of your cheekbone it's, fu- it's fucking agony from what I've heard. And you pull that skin up from the inside so that it will create mm. a slanted eye and it will lift mm. your cheekbones to give you more of an Asian face. Oh, oh.
1: Everybody's oh. doing it.
0: People in Hollywood are having fucking threading parties where oh. they, these actresses oh. are like having like cosmopolitans <laughs> and numbing up <laughs> their faces and having these agonizing oh things. Where if you're noticing, people's like eyebrows and eyelids oh. are, are lifting wow. and moving into a way. That kind of shapes them almost like, you know, I'm Asian, you're Asian, we're from different yeah. parts of Asia, but we have naturally slanted eyes. Uh, but That's they are, crazy. you have white women trying to get our slanted eyes, and then you have <laughs> white women injecting their lips to make them look similar to that of a black woman.
1: And then you have injections Mm -hmm.
0: in the bottom or doing 10,000 squats a day to try and have a bigger bottom, which again, we associate with people of colour or black people. And so after all these fucking years of trying to meet the white ideal, the white ideal has shifted to pick little bits of us and the tanning cream while we in our countries are still being told to bleach. Yeah. So just a shit show.
1: (laughs) Make up your mind. Who's making the rules? I I want to find (laughs) him
0: and beat him the fuck up that's right it's so exhausting and just like I said just when you think about how much it's flipped like if if teenage you and I knew that everything that we were probably just fucking born with would eventually Mm -hmm. be the thing that would become desirable ah the money the time the hours the pain the tears and the fact that your kidneys failed I know it's so sad how has your experience been in this industry it's been really like it's interesting
1: because it's changed because now it's kind of like it's moved over to um, people starting to realize that we can actually have more of a diversity kind of conversation, that we can actually accept the idea of Asian American comedy. And I think that's still a relatively new proposition for people like it's still like. It's only been a couple of years since Crazy Rich Asians, which really changed a lot of people's minds around Asians and comedy. And and so, you know, it's, it's weird how that movie and um, Fresh Off the Boat have really sort of shifted around like the idea of Asians in Hollywood. So I think that things have changed a lot.
0: Yeah, and misogyny-wise?
1: Misogyny still has a ways to go. And with... Um, certainly with the death of uh ruth bader ginsburg it's really like now we're kind of like i i still can't believe we're still worried about abortion rights and about pro-choice i mean it's like i i'm so scared about this i'm and i'm really concerned about yeah what's next you know that we're still fighting over our, our own bodies like this is a real it's a really scary time
0: Something I also really like that you said to me when we were speaking the other day was how much you love living alone, which no one talks about enough because women are supposed to feel like, especially women, like men are bachelors when they live in their bachelor pad. We never talk no. about that. It was like someone's like spinster bin, you know, like sp- <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going back to my trash can now, um, oh. you know, covered in cat sick. Uh, we, we don't celebrate a woman's bachelorette pad. Mm,
1: I love it. I love it. And I think it's really, I mean, it sustains me. I think it's really important. And I think it's really what I've been missing. Mm. You know, that's, that's the thing that I just, I'm so grateful that I get to do it. And I didn't realize that this was what I wanted. And, um, you know, I, I think that, like, all of that programming of like growing up and the patriarchy has made me afraid to live alone my entire life that when I finally got to do it and it was so enjoyable and I didn't want to go back that if every woman realized how great it was
0: we would all want to live alone oh that's (laughs) so interesting so what you're saying that they've like made us feel afraid of living alone so that we never try it and realize how fantastic it is it's the best. It is that the is best. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's I th- so uh, fun. I think that's so great. I mean, because my boyfriend has a music studio in our in our house. Um, it's basically like that's his own room, and the bedroom is basically mm. mine because I work out of mm-hmm. there. And so that's kind of I think that's been the key to our success in a relationship where we're going on six years or something. And it's because yeah. we kind of it managed to exist somewhat in separate togetherness because of soundproofing. Um, mm. on his studio tours so that's it feels good. like we both live alone because we won't see yeah. each other for 11 or 12 hours a day and just kind of mm-hmm. I have a mini fridge in the bedroom so I don't even need to leave and go out to oh, the kitchen good. and have to see anyone I just get to exist in my own solitude but Christ oh, yeah if I if I didn't live with someone so independent and someone who was so consumed with their own independence I honestly think I would love to live alone yeah. Yeah. And I love yeah. hearing someone enjoy just the fact that I know where my shit is. I know that no one's going to strip wherever they're standing. You know, uh-huh. but I know that I'm not going to have to deal with anyone else's dishes.
1: Right. Oh, right. It feels so good. It feels so good. Yeah. Just and also, you
0: know where everything is. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I a lot of people don't have that space. I'm lucky that the bedroom is just my apartment basically, because I mm. get this little, I have this little app that tells me when my hormones are kicking in, like when I'm about to start becoming like a miserable, hungry bitch. And I know that to just retreat into my little mm. bedroom and just stay there, but it's yeah. so hard to do that. It's like, we have these crashes, we have these vulnerable moments where we are just unacceptable for public consumption and we need right. to be alone Because otherwise we put people off. We say things that can't be unsaid. People see things in us that cannot be unseen. And we deserve some fucking privacy. That's right. It's so good to know. So good to know. We should have dorms. I swear to God for like (laughs) 30 plus women. I feel like we should be allowed dorms, cheap dormitories where we can just go and fuck off and be by ourselves in a safe place with a Mm -hmm. guarded door. That would be great. That
1: would be great, but
0: it's great to be alone. It's great to be alone. It's so,
1: it's so rejuvenating, and you can face the world another day. But it feels so good, and you know that was always my. I think everybody's greatest fear was to like be alone. What am I going to be alone? I'm going to die alone, and it's actually the best thing ever. So I'm very happy.
0: Some of the loneliest people I know are in relationships. They're in marriages. It's
1: the worst the worst when you're an unhappy marriage oh the worst unhappy relationships the worst
0: so well because you're lying to them you're lying to yourself so it's this weird like internal hollow loneliness that's really terrifying that I think that somehow we've still been convinced is better than just some fucking freedom yeah I love the fact I mean look at your skin for anyone who's being able to see these clips I mean you have the glowing skin of a woman who is living alone carefree (laughs) we love we love to (laughs) see it And I love, I love hearing this because again, you know, we're in lockdown. A lot of people are by themselves and some people are genuinely just suffering from the loneliness of such like devastating isolation. But what I notice from some of the DMs that I get is that some people are enjoying living alone and then they're Mm -hmm. feeling bad that they're enjoying living alone and they're feeling ashamed Mm. of it and wondering if there's something wrong with them for enjoying Mm. the space. And I, I can't stress to you enough that Margaret and I collectively would like you to stop feeling bad about that. There's nothing wrong with you. Privacy is fantastic. There were not supposed to be this many human beings on this earth. We were all supposed yeah. to have a bit more fucking space and a bit more room. And we've <laughs> been fear-mongered out of the right to our own space. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled to have you talk about that. I think it's very empowering. And also thank you for talking me so candidly kind of you know through all of the things there was almost so much that you've gone through that I (laughs) it, it was hard to know where to begin but I'm so in awe of how you have utilized that to come out and just be so honest and open and so normalizing Margaret Cho what do you weigh?
1: I weigh my joy and excitement and
0: continued happiness. Wonderful. Um, Well, thank you so much. And I will see you soon when this shit show is over. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it, and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at iWeigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1 818 660 5543 or email us what you weigh, at, I weigh podcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram. Anyway, and now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. I weigh my relationships. With my husband and my family and my friends, I weigh my perseverance and my resilience uh, through some really tough times. I weigh the children that I teach and the knowledge that they're getting from me and from the world around them and helping them make sense of it all.